Exodus 25, we come to an interesting portion here in Scripture uh, where God, the first thing he spoke with Moses about after being freed from Egypt was the Ten Commandments. If you want a fancy word for the Ten Commandments, it's the Decalogue. And it's the Ten Commandments, the Ten Rules that the Israelites were to live by that would separate them from the rest of the people around them and the rest of the world around them. The next thing that God gave to Moses was basically the laws of the nation. It was the interpretation of those Ten Commandments. Again, he didn't leave that interpretation up to us. He didn't leave it up to a board or a Supreme Court to interpret the laws. God himself would give the interpretation of those Ten Commandments and how they were to be enacted and what they looked like. The final thing that Moses is going to be given by God, it's a set of building plans. It's going to be the set of plans on how to build the tabernacle. And really, God is going to go more in-depth in that than anything else. I think probably most of the 40 days where Moses is up on the mountain alone with God, he's just spending time with God, but the Lord is going through inch by inch or cubit by cubit, if you really want to get into it, right? He's going cubit by cubit, weight by weight, Shekel by shekel, how much weight, how many inches, and what everything would look like. I don't know if we have any architectures here this morning. Any architectures? No? Anybody that's in interior design this morning? Got one? Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you. So we got one person that will find this morning's study interesting, hopefully. <laughs> right? The nine, we had no one. If not, maybe after this morning's study, now you'll want to become an architect or an interior designer. Uh, one last story before we get into this. Uh, my mom studied interior design in college. She worked at an architect firm for a long time. And in fifth grade, I don't know who would give this project to a bunch of fifth graders, but in fifth grade, we had to build a model of the tabernacle at our school. So the rest of the kids, I knew what their project was going to look like. It was going to look like bounty paper rolls and paper and construction paper not my project. My project, my mom took it, and now it had to be to scale, had to be built with form board, with fabric, with wood, with coloring. I got an A on the project, wasn't happy with my mom building the project, but that thing came out perfect. <laughs> that thing came out perfect. So from fifth grade to 32 years old, I feel like my life has led up to this uh, very moment here for this. But again, the tabernacle, what was this place? You get three different words uh, in the Hebrew for tabernacle. It was a holy place, it was a dwelling place, and it was a meeting place. It was the meeting place. It was the place where if you wanted to meet with God, you would go to this tabernacle. You got to remember, all of Israel is modular right now, and they would go to meet with God here in the tabernacle. It was a meeting place. It was a dwelling place because of the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory of God would be there in the Holy of Holies and God's presence would dwell there amongst the people of Israel. And because God's presence dwelt there, the tabernacle was a holy place. And now the only way you could enter in is following God's commands. Real quick in Exodus chapter 38 verse 24 we get a quick, quick picture, a quick, quick idea of how expensive this tent was. Uh, it's interesting. Some people get into camping at the men's 
retreat, we were talking about pop-up campers and the pros and cons of them and some funny stories about them and how camping can be super cheap or maybe some of you here have one of those overland vehicles that is basically a hotel on wheels and you just stop at a place and pull out the solar panels and the hot tub and all that stuff. But in Exodus 38 verse 24, it tells us all the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place that is, the gold of the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So we're given two forms of measurement there. We're given talents and shekels. We'll just look at the talents there. And the Babylonian talent would weigh about 66 pounds. The Roman talent was about 170 pounds. So just to find a middle area there to get an idea, 100 pounds per talent. We know that there was 29 talents of gold used throughout this tabernacle. This morning, I don't know if the rate's gone up or down, gold was at $1,739 an ounce this morning. So if you're going to build a tabernacle, just the gold alone, if you're going to build it today, would cost over $80 million. That's an expensive tent. Very, very expensive tent. And again, all throughout history, some of the most beautiful buildings and architecture, it's places of worship. Different religions, different belief systems, but more often than not, a lot of focus is given to a place of worship, which really shows that all of mankind is looking for someone or something to worship. So again, an $80 million building project that's not even on concrete. Again, pretty incredible. But we're here in Exodus 25. Let's read verse 1 through 9, and then we'll keep uh, going through it. It tells us, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, Badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Again, this all starts off with an offering. All starts off with an offering. And look at the heart of God. The Lord wanted to speak to Moses. And he said, okay, Moses, you go and you ask the people if they're willing, they can donate to this project for the Lord. We know that, again, if you remember the context here, there's two million Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. We know none of them wanted to go up the mountain. They were all scared, the thundering, the quaking, the smoke, the fire. They said, Moses, you go up and talk to God, and then you come and talk to us. We don't want to go up there. So if God wanted, he could have screamed from the mountain, give me all your gold, right? God could have said, give me everything you got, or I'm going to strike you dead. But that wasn't the heart of the Lord. He was willing to say, Moses, I want to speak to you. And now you go and speak to the people. Because, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Very important scripture for us 
and church and Christianity today, ministry today. Uh, again, this is our heartbeat as far as tithing. There's two little boxes in the back if you want to give or the online giving. Uh, but if this isn't your home church, that we would know what giving should truly look like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul writing to the church of Corinth, the Lord writing to us today also tells us in verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, the Lord said, if they're willing, if he is willing of heart, then you're going to take the offering. I don't want you to guilt him, right? This ministry is going to shut down if you don't give today. I don't want you to be pressuring them, asking them over and over and over for it. I want you to ask once, and if they're willing to give it, let them give it. Because God loves a cheerful giver. We shouldn't be giving grudgingly that we're bummed out or mad about it or out of necessity. We should be doing it out of joy and gladness for what the Lord has done for us. We jump down to verse 8 and what's the whole point of this building project? If you remember the point of God freeing the children of Israel from Egypt, He didn't just free them to allow them to go around Canaan and do whatever they want. It says that He freed them to draw them unto himself. That was the whole point, the whole reasoning of being free. And now in verse 8, we see the point of this building project, of this donation, it was that God would dwell among them. And that's God's desire today. God's desire for each and every one of us is that we would allow God to dwell among us. That we would build our own space and say, Lord, please, I want you to dwell in my home. I want you to be a part of my family. Lord, I want you to be the focal point of my family. In John chapter 1 verse 14, it tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And there's two things to keep in mind as we study the tabernacle and these set of blueprints. The first is the real-life application for the Israelites today. God was telling them, this is how you're supposed to build the tabernacle where you come and worship me. For us today, we're not going to build it. Maybe God will call us to build a model back there. But we're not going to build a tabernacle back there or make the pastors wear the ephods and the bonnets and all that different things, right? What we see all throughout this study is Jesus Christ over and over and over again. All of Christianity, all of the Bible, it points to Christ. And there in John 1 verse 14, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally to fix one's tabernacle. It's telling us that Jesus, the word, became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. That Jesus came down from heaven. He was willing to put on a tent to look like us, to again dwell with us. To spend time with us. This tabernacle, it's a preview of Jesus and his desire at the end of the day to dwell among us. We see this desire in Christ being fully realized in Revelation chapter 21. Let's turn there. That's a quick one to turn to. You just flip all the way to the back of your Bible. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 and 4, this is after basically everything. 
has happened. The old world is gone. The new world is made. New kingdom. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 and 4, John's writing and he tells us, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Again, this is the desire of our God. This is the desire of Christ is that we would allow him, make room for him to dwell among us. Go back to Exodus 25. So the plan, the point of this building is so that God would dwell among us. But in verse 9, we see that there's only one way that we can come to God. And that's however God says. We talked about it at the 9 a.m. service. Hopefully none of you have been to a point where with your employer you've been late so many times that you're on the verge of being fired and your boss says, look, I'm going to give you grace one last time. This is what you have to do to keep yourself from getting fired. I hope if you're at that point you just stay humble and you say, yes, boss, whatever you say. I hope none of you come out and say, okay, this is what's going to happen so I don't get fired, Okay. This is the plan. This is the purpose. You're going to let me come in at 10 or 10, 15, because then you're going to be double fired. You're going to get fired once, and then you're going to get fired again. You see, the thing for us as human beings is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us deserves to be able to dwell with God. And now God says, you want to dwell with me? I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. The problem with the world today is we all have a certain feeling on how we can dwell with God. We have this emotion, I can dwell with God like this, or I think I can dwell with God like this, or I think God likes that, or I just got these vibes that this is what God desires, right? But verse 9 tells us that God tells Moses specifically, again, right, he wants to dwell with them, and then in verse 9, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. God is telling Moses, you have zero freedom in this building project. You have to do exactly what I'm telling you to do if you want to do it correctly and if you want me to dwell with you. There's no artistic freedom here. There's not what Moses feels like doing or what he thinks is going to feel good for the people. It's exactly what God tells him to do. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And here in Hebrews, we see how Christ is better than topic after topic after topic in Scripture. And in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews begins to tell us and reveal to us how Jesus is better than the high priest. And how Jesus is better than any temple and any tabernacle, period. And really, the author of Hebrews here is going to reveal to us the whole point and reasoning for the tabernacle or for the temple. There in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 5, it tells us, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not a man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So again, this whole building that we're going to look at is just a shadow and a pattern of the throne room of God. If you make it through the study this morning and you stay awake the whole time, right? When we get to heaven, you'll say, man, I heard about this. This doesn't look familiar, but this sounds familiar. Because the tabernacle and the temple, it's a preview and a picture of what heaven's going to look like. And what the actual throne room of God is going to look like. This was to be an exact replica of what we are going to see in heaven. It's a copy and a shadow which will lead us to Jesus Christ over and over and over again. So again, we can't come up with our own ideas to be able to dwell with God. We can't come up with our own emotions, our own desires. I feel like he likes this or I think he... No, we have to go to God's word. He gives us the building plans and he says, you want me to dwell with you? I want to dwell with you too, but this is the way to do it. We go back to Exodus chapter 25, and now we look at verse 10, and the Lord is going to speak to Moses, and he's going to build it out from the inside out. There's going to be basically no curb appeal to this building. On the outside, it's going to basically look like a giant sole of a shoe, and on the inside is where all the glory and all the majesty is going to be at. And it starts with the most important piece of furniture in this tent. Verse 10, it says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood that's two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. A cubit in ancient culture was from the tip of your finger to the bottom of your elbow. Now, all of us have different cubits, right? Especially if you're five foot tall and the person next to you is seven foot tall, you're going to have different cubits, right? Give yourself a giant, instead of a high five, a high cubit, right? And now if you go to kids' ministry, those little kids, their cubits are going to be different. So if they were to build a tabernacle, I don't know if many of us would be able to fit inside of it, right? So the number that most scholars agree with is each cubit is about 18 inches long. So just transferring this so we can understand it easily and quickly. This ark was to be 45 inches long, a little bit less than 4 feet, by 27 inches wide, a little bit more than 2 feet, and 27 inches high. Again, a little bit more than 2 feet. And this was the ark of the covenant. This small box made of acacia wood, 4 feet by 2 feet by 2 feet. They were to take this wood and now overlay it with pure gold, verse 11, both on the inside and on the outside. And you shall make on it a molding of gold all around. Again, God doesn't want them to do things in a way that cuts corners, right? In Miami, we say, eso es Mickey Mouse, right? We, God doesn't want anything Mickey Mouse, right? Sorry if you love Disney, but it's just the same we say here, right? Why am I going to put gold on the inside? No one's going to ever see that, right? 
In fact, if somebody touches it, they're going to be dead. God, why are we going to put gold on the inside? We could save costs, right? But God wants everything that's done for him perfect to the best of our abilities. It was to be made only of wood and gold, again, showing the humanity of Christ and the majesty of Christ all at the same time. Again, all of this had to be modular. They had to be able to move it from place to place. And yet God wanted no man to touch this Ark of the Covenant. So verse 12 through 15, instead of having handles, they would have four rings of gold for it. They'd put them on the four corners, two rings on one side, two rings on another side. Then they would make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And they would put the poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark that the Ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the Ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give to you. Again, the ark was made so that no man would put their hands on it. No handles on it. Because there really is no handles on the presence and the majesty and the power of God. You can think back later in 1 Samuel. David's trying to do God a favor and bring the ark of the covenant in new ways, right? Where it belongs. So he puts it on wheels. What happens is the poor guy, Uz, tries to save it. It's falling and he dies right away because they're not carrying it the way that God commanded them to carry it. What did they put in the Ark of the Testimony later on? They put the Ten Commandments in there. They put Aaron's budded rod. Aaron, he's walking around with a rod that has flowers budding on it. And they would also put in there a container of manna that would never rot and never fade away. Now in verse 17, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, they would make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. Same exact dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. There's no way to the inside of the Ark of the Covenant without getting through the mercy seat. And this mercy seat, it's found in the New Testament as a word that's propitiation. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Because again, for us, we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant. Some of us were thinking of Harrison Ford and Nazis being melted away. But that's not what it's really about. It's about the presence of God. It's not a homing beacon or a melting beacon. But in Romans chapter 3, again, we get an idea here. What's this all pointing to? It's a shadow. It's a sign. It's the prequel to the main thing that God has for us. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, it tells us, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as the propitiation, as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Again, what does this word propitiation mean? I don't know if you've used that this week or this month, or this year, right? But many husbands and wives, you do propitiation whether you realize it or not. It's an act of appeasing. 
It's to gain or regain favor or goodwill. It's to make up for an offense. So maybe it's your first time meeting a girl and, and her family and you bring flowers for her and flowers for the mom. You're doing propitiation. You're trying to gain favor. I know none of the husbands here, only the 9 a.m. guys and myself, right? You mess up. You blow it with your wife. So then the next day you say, honey, don't worry about the dishes. Don't worry about cooking. You bring her flowers, chocolate. Let's go out to dinner. And what you're doing is you're trying to make up for an offense. You're trying to regain her favor. And we need to do the same thing with the Lord. Later on in Exodus, we'll see a special day, a special festival known as the Day of Atonement. And one time a year, the annual Day of Atonement, the high priest and only the high priest would be able to enter the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat there on the Ark of the Covenant first for himself and his sins, and then he would sprinkle blood from another sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. This ceremony would communicate that the life of the people, which they deserved to lose because of their sins, was now offered to God in the blood of this innocent sacrifice. That God, by this ceremony, their sins were appeased and atoned for. Again, it's hard for us to really realize this. You could write down Romans chapter 6, verse 23. If you're still there in Romans, you could turn to the page over. And it tells us in verse 23 of Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The problem is each and every one of us have offended God. Every single person that has ever lived, has offended God. They have done things that now they need to regain favor with God. Again, the wages of sin, every time we miss the mark, every time we fight or we steal or we argue, every time we have a prideful thought or a lustful thought, we're sinning against God. And now the wages of that is death. It's like if you're getting a new job and you sit there and say, hey, your wages for the year, it's gonna be $50,000 or $100,000. Each, each time we sin, the wages we receive, it's death. And now the way God would provide so that the whole nation of Israel would not be wiped out is that they would have to find a perfect sacrifice. A perfect lamb, a perfect bull, a perfect goat. And again, the Lord does that on purpose. Think of the last time you took your kids to a petting zoo and they have the little sheep there, right? The little goats. It's not the like funky looking one that has crazy eyes or a tumor or has three legs. It's the perfect one, the cutest one there. It's the one that your little four-year-old says, can we take it home, right? And it's this animal that you'd have to purchase or you'd have to raise and you'd have to bring there to the altar, putting your hand on the throat of the animal, in a sense praying, saying, Lord, this animal's taking my sins. The wages of sin being death, Lord, this animal is going to take on the death that I deserve. And now you would be there as the high priest or yourself would have to put that animal to death and then sacrifice it to the Lord. The thing is that each and every one of us have sins that we need to have atoned for today. Because we don't want to pay the penalty of death for them. And we're not going to build an altar in the back of the property. That's not what we're here for. Jesus Christ, he's our propitiation. Jesus Christ sees our mercy seat. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, John tells us, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, right? Duh, everybody sins. We have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. He is the mercy seat for our sins and not ours only, but for the whole world. He's our sacrifice. He's our way that we can be right with God, that our sins can be atoned for, that God will be appeased. And now Jesus Christ, his death and sacrifice is even greater because it says we are washed of our sins. We are cleansed. We're not just appeasing, but we're washed. We're made brand new once again. We don't have a high priest to go to the tabernacle and make up for our offenses anymore. Now we can go straight to Christ. And that's why we must accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Right? John the Baptist, he says, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then and only then will we not taste of what we deserve, but we'll get to taste of life and life everlasting. The problem is many people, they want Jesus to be someone else, right? They want Jesus to be their counselor. They want Jesus to be their accountant. They want Jesus to be their guide in life, right? But we need him to be our savior. I don't know when was the last time you had a tour guide, right? You went on a trip, maybe a long time because of COVID, right? Tour guides, most of them, we've gone to Israel a lot of time. They're kind of built the same way, usually pretty slim. They got to walk around a lot, pretty nice, pretty personable. Uh, some people, they want Christ to be a counselor, right? They just want to be able to lay down on a couch, and they just want Jesus sitting next to them with a pen and paper saying, Zach, tell me how you're feeling today, right? What happened? Just tell me. But we need Christ to be our Savior. Right? Think of the movies. Think of the difference between a Savior of a nation or of a world compared to a counselor or compared to a tour guide. We need to take on Christ as our Savior, as the Lord of all, not just as a counselor, not just as a wingman, not just as a co-pilot, but as our Savior then and only then will we be able to taste of the presence of God and not taste of the death that we deserve because of our sins. Back in Exodus 25, he continues in the details of this mercy seat. And now on the outsides of the mercy seat, he tells them in verse 18 that he's going to make two cherubim. These are two angels made of gold, of hammered work, and you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. You're going to make one cherub at one end, the other cherub on the other end, and you shall make the cherub at the two ends of it in one piece with the mercy seat. You could write down Psalm 80 verse 1 and also Psalm 99 verse 1, and this is a picture of the throne room of God. In Psalm 99 verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Again, surrounding the throne room of God, surrounding the throne, there are these angelic beings all around the throne room of God. And now the mercy seat was to be a picture of the throne room of God with those cherubim guarding the outsides of God's throne. Verse 20, the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Verse 22, and there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. 
from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Again, where's the only place where we can meet with God? What's the only place where God is going to speak to us? It's on the mercy seat. It's based upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only place where you're going to hear from God. That's the only place where God's going to dwell is there on top of the mercy seat. You can write down Leviticus chapter 16 verse 2. And there God, he speaks even in more detail of what's going to happen here. And God tells Moses to tell Aaron to not come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Again, the Lord, his presence was going to be there right on top of the mercy seat. That word Shekinah glory, right? The light shining forth of the glory of God would be there in the Holy of Holies, which would be a small cube room. It would be 15 by 15 by 15 high. And there is where the Ark of the Covenant would be and the testimony, the presence of God there on top. And now we don't have to be fearful to go into the throne of God with the two cherubim around him because we have Jesus Christ. We have that mercy seat. You can write down Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, and it tells us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That as sons and daughters of God, we get to come boldly to the throne of grace, right? There's that picture of the presidents, I think it was JFK or Reagan, I don't remember which one, right? And the small son is hiding under the desk of the president, JFK, right? What would happen if you were hiding under the desk of the president, right? You'd be hauled off to jail. It's not that cute, right? But now if you're a son or daughter of the president, that's right where you belong. And that's the difference between when we come to God through Christ Jesus that we're adopted into the family of God or if we're an outsider. If we're an outsider, your picture's taken, taking mugshots, right? That's how your picture's taken. But if we're a son or daughter of the king, that's exactly where you belong. You get to come boldly to that throne of grace. You get to come boldly to that presidential office. So again, for us to know it's only in and through Jesus Christ. That's how we can have that sweet access to the Lord that he would dwell with us. Exodus 25, verse 23. Now we're going to see the second piece of furniture here talked about. A lot of detail for furniture, right? We're going to see specifically God gives them the exact layout. Some of you guys thought your wives were specific with the layout of the furniture. God, even more specific. Uh, verse 23. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, so 36 inches, 3 feet. A cubit its width, 18 inches wide and a cubit and a half its height right so it's less than about two feet high and you shall overlay it with pure gold make a molding of gold all around it you shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around you shall make for it four rings of gold put the four rings again four corners the ring shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table you shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, right? Talk about fine china. 
You have pure gold bowls, pure gold dishes and pans, all of it. Today we go to Target for 50 cents to get our dishes, right? And now verse 30, you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Again, it's, it's so interesting how God is. We paint God, and he is this incredible being, omniscient, all-powerful, able to destroy, able to bring life with just the thought of it. But what's God's desire for us? It's the fellowship with him. Uh, we saw that last time. They all go up the mountain, the 70 elders, Moses, Joshua, Aaron's two sons, and they go up the mountain. And after they see God, right, we think they either see Jesus or they see the tip of his clothing. What's the first thing that God wants to do with them? Sit down and eat, right? And that's the same thing God wants to do with us. He wants us to be able to sit down and eat in his presence. Again, this would only be for the priests. And this showbread, it's literally translated the bread of faces. That'd be pretty creepy. I hope it's not like actual human faces there, right? But it's the bread of faces or presence bread. And again, you would only be able to eat of this bread when you were in God's presence. In this culture, when you would invite someone over your home and you would break bread together to eat, you were signifying that you were one. You were one family. That's why it's such a big deal, hospitality in this day and age. So God, how he wants to fellowship with us is that we would be one with him. The only way we can be one with him, again, through Jesus Christ. Through the sacrifice, we'll look at the altar uh, two weeks from now. That's the only way we can come in and have that fellowship with God. Again, the whole point of the forgiveness of our sins is not just so that we can feel better or do better. The whole point of the forgiveness of our sins is so that we could have fellowship with God. And so that we could have His presence and become one with Him. Again, that's why that table of showbread is there. You can write down John chapter 6, verse 35 and verse 48. This is Jesus speaking. Again, how all of this is just pointing to who Jesus is. John chapter 6, verse 35 and verse 48. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. How can we be in the presence of God? How do we break bread in the presence of God? Spending time with Jesus, getting to know Jesus more and more. Exodus 25, verse 31. Now we'll look at the lighting. There's no electrical, but we'll look at the lighting here in this tent. Verse 31, it says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of a hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. So you're not soldering a bunch of different pieces of gold and screwing them together or gluing them together. All one big piece of gold. Six branches come out of its sides, three on one side, three out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and flower. Three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. You can write down Revelation chapter 4 verse 5. Again, how the tabernacle, it's the picture of God's throne room. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 5, John is taken, the apostle John, he's taken into heaven for a moment, and he's able to see the throne room of God. And in verse 5, he tells us that from the throne proceeded lightning and thunder and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire 
burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So again, even in the throne room of God, there's that lampstand there with the seven branches. Verse 34, on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like an almond blossom, each with its ornamental knob and flower. There shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Again, this lampstand was the only lighting in the whole entire tabernacle. Then you'd have the veil, and then in the Holy of Holies, the only lighting in there is the Shekinah glory of God. We'll look at it later on. All the walls of the tabernacle, it was gold-plated. So again, the majesty on the inside, you'd have one source of light with gold that is reflecting all the light going on on the inside. Again, what's the only source of light for our life today and our world today? It's Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus then spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The only source of light for our world today, family, is Jesus Christ. That's the main thing we should be looking to bring into the lives of all our families. It's Jesus Christ. Being a conservative, that's not going to be the source of light to change our world today. It's only Jesus Christ. Bitcoin is not the source of light that's going to change our world today. It's only found in Jesus Christ. The tough thing for us is that Jesus tells us that he's the light of the world as long as he's on the earth. But hopefully we all know he's not on the earth anymore, right? You guys aren't sure. He's not in the world anymore, right? He's up in heaven. He's in our hearts. He's omniscient, right? He's at the throne room of God interceding for us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he passes that responsibility to us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So now the job of illuminating this world with the truth, the only truth that can open our eyes, it's on us. It's on each and every one of us. The tough thing for us is we're not like Christ, that he's just the most right, powerful being, the biggest battery ever. The light is just naturally coming in and out of him, and it's never going to stop. With us, it's not the same. We're very similar to the moon, in a sense. Not that we got a bunch of holes and cracks everywhere. That's not what it's about, right? We're like the moon because we reflect the sun. And as long as the sun is shining on us, we're going to be that light of the world. But now what's the only thing that gets in the way of the sun and the moon? It's the earth. It's this world. So the problem for us is when we are consumed with the world, our light is going to get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And I hope none of us, we want to be like that little banana light of the world, right? Just a little sliver of the light of the world. Hopefully none of us were that new moon where there's nothing of Christ shining out of our lives because we're so filled with the things of this world. May we get the things of this world out of our lives so that we can fully reflect the Son of God shining in each and every one of us. Again, family, we are that light of the world. We're the ones that need to bring the truth, the only truth that can save our world and even our nation today. Back to verse 36. It says they're knobs, they're branches, they're going to be of one piece, all of it hammered, one pure piece of gold. You're going to make seven lamps from it. 
and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold and all these utensils and see to it that you make them again according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Moses, you got no freedom here. Got to make it exactly like I told you to make it if you want me to dwell with you. I don't know what's the most expensive uh, chandelier you have in your house. It's funny, as you get older, the things you get excited about, right? As a kid, you got excited about like toys and video games. Now people get like excited, I got an air fryer, right? Or whatever it is. I got a new lawnmower. I got a new blower, right? As you get older and older. Uh, but this, right, this lampstand, it tells us here that it was one talent of pure gold. So again, we take our 100 pounds per talent, get the price of gold. This one piece of furniture here in the tabernacle cost over $2 million just for this chandelier, right? Just for this lampstand in there. Again, to show the majesty of God. Jump to chapter 26. Now we're going to look at these curtains. And it's going to be layers of curtains. We looked at some of the pieces of furniture. Later on, we'll see more pieces of furniture. But now he's going to go into the curtains and different layers of curtains. Again, it's a giant tent. That needs to be able to be broken down, moved, and set back up. Verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. So here again, the Lord, he does give that opportunity to Moses, to the designers. Hey, make it beautiful. Make it nice. doesn't just have to be plain Jane. Everything doesn't have to be black and white inside the throne room of God, right? And it was blue, purple, scarlet thread and designs of cherubim. And now this would be the first layer over this tent. So now as you're in the tent, the ceiling would be this artistic drawings. They're not drawings, but threading, right, of the cherubim. You'd have gold all around that would be reflecting the ceiling with that lampstand in there. So it would be like you were in the throne room of God. The reflection of the cherubim everywhere you look. The one light lighting the whole room. And on the inside, this is what you would see. Verse 2 through 6. It says, the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, the width of each curtain 4 cubits. Every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains will be coupled to another. The other five curtains be coupled to another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvage of one set. And likewise, you shall do it on the outer edge of the other curtains on the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on one curtain. Fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that's on the end of the second set that the loops hopefully you guys aren't getting loopy the loops may be closed to another and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle and if any of you men have had the joy of putting up a curtain rod right up for your wife you got those loops so it's 50 loops on each side this is what holds up these curtains and again the focus that God has within this building you see no focus on the floor. The floor is dirt or sand or whatever they got going on in the wilderness. But they were to always be looking up. Always be looking up to remind the priests that this earth was not their home. To keep looking up to heaven. To be expectant in heaven and to be able to be there one day with Christ. And very similar, this tent is made up of a bunch of pieces, right? Got a bunch of loops, a bunch of curtains, a bunch of stuff. Same is true for us and the body of Christ. You can write down Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. 
It tells us in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Have you ever had that shower curtain that just one of the loops breaks, right? If you're OCD like me, it starts bugging you, right? It starts bothering you. It's like, what's going on here, right? If you don't come to church, if you start missing out, that's that loop that's broken. That's that part of the body of Christ that's missing. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul continues the same idea. He says, from the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Again, family, we need all of you to be here. To edify one another, right? Maybe you're here online. If you're sick, you can't come. That's fine. But if you're just afraid or just locked into the comfort or ease, got to come. That's the whole point of the body of Christ. If this wasn't important, God wouldn't have designed it in Scripture. Go to verse 7. Now we go to the next curtain, the next layer. Verse 7, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle, and you shall make 11 curtains. So again, first curtain, fine linen, this fine weaving, artistic stuff, but you're out in the wilderness, so you need layers to protect the inside. Like in your house, you have layers that protect the inside, protect the sheetrock. Bad things happen when things get in between those layers. So the next layer is to be made of goat's hair. Verse 8, the length of each curtain, 30 cubits, width of each curtain, 4 cubits, and the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves, six curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that's on the outermost in one set, 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. You shall make 50 bronze clasps, put in the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. Finally, verse 14, you shall make also a covering of ramskin dyed red for the tent so you have the goats here, then you have this ramskin dyed red, and then you would have a covering of badger skin above that. We don't really know what this badger skin is. If you have a King James Version Bible or different versions, some say that it's porpoise skin. So if you love flipper, I'm sorry. Or some others say that it's sea cow skin. So if you love manatees, I'm sorry. But this leather was very important in this time period. We don't know exactly what it is. You could write down Ezekiel 16, verse 10, if you're looking to make some sandals. It says, God using his very best, he says that he clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothe you with fine linen and cover you with silk. This was the best of the best waterproof leather. So again, our God, he's into all these fine details that we'd be focused on the glory of God. But he's practical. It has to be waterproof. If not, it'd all get messed up. It would all get jacked up. So again, God, very practical, but on the focus of the holiness on the inside. This badger skin, 
Again, you look at the sole of your shoe. I don't know if it looks super pretty to you or super nice to you. But for the surrounding tribes of Israel, they would look at the tent and say, dude, there's a giant sole of a shoe. What's so special about that place? It's like this light gray giant tent. But the priest would know, man, if you were able to go in the inside, you would see the majesty. You would see the glory. If only you would be able to come into the tabernacle with me. Again, only the Levites later on, they were the only ones allowed into the tabernacle. Different ones would rotate. Only one, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies. But I got to think, right, the nation of Israel, they're talking with each other, hanging out. Man, being a priest isn't that boring, right? You have to go into that leathery tent every day. Isn't that boring? But, oh, man, you were only able to come into the presence of God. If you were only able to see the gold and the majesty and the power. And family, I believe that's us today, right? First Peter, he says that we are a nation of priests. And for us, the world may look to us and say, man, you got to go into that leathery tent Sunday morning, right? You mean you don't get to go to brunch on Sunday morning? You don't get to go fishing? You have to go to church. Do you really want to go, right? Can't watch football. I can't, can't sleep in Sunday morning. Come on, man. And we should be able to tell them, oh, if you only knew. If you only knew the taste of being in God's presence. If you only knew what it was like on the inside, then you would want to be here with us. And it's the same thing with Christ, right? Isaiah tells us on the outside, there is nothing special of Jesus Christ. He says he looked like any ordinary guy around. When Judas is trying to point him out to the officials, he doesn't say, pick the guy that's super jacked, pick the guy that has a glowing uh, sun on the back of his head. He doesn't say, hey, pick the guy that's seven feet tall. He says, let me kiss him, because if not, you're not going to know who in the world he is. And it's the same thing with the Lord. The Lord is mostly concerned with the inside, right? We've been looking at that on Wednesday nights. God cares about what's going on inside of us. What is our soul like? What is our insight, our presence of God? What does it look like? Is it carnal? Is it sinful? Is it gross? Or is it filled with the love of God and the humility of God? Keep going, verse 15. Now, these are the pieces of wood. If you're into tongue and groove or mortise and tendons, right? That's exactly what this is. Verse 15, the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be on each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards. Verse 21... And there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards, and you shall make two boards for the back two corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom. They shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five boards for the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end, and you shall overlay the boards with gold. 
Make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. Finally here, we get a very important piece within the tabernacle, the veil. Verse 31, you shall make a veil or a super thick curtain, if you would, woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven, again, with an artistic design of cherubim, like you were in the throne room of God. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks will be made of gold upon four sockets of silver, and you will hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy, right? Holy of holies and the rest of the tabernacle. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy, and you shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand is going to be across from the table on the other side of the tabernacle towards the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, made by a weaver, and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Let's turn real quick to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll close up here. We made it. You guys made it. Hebrews chapter 9. What is the point of this veil? Why would God want a huge thick curtain between His presence and the rest of the tabernacle. Lord, why would you have this? And again, uh, God's word is so incredible. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8 and 9. It says, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. What was the whole point of this veil? It was, there was a reason for it to show that there was no way into the presence of God until man could be made perfect. Until we could be cleansed and washed away of our sins instead of our sins just simply being able to be appeased by God. And that moment when Jesus dies on the cross, guess what happened? The veil between the holiest of holies and the rest of the tabernacle was torn in two. It wasn't torn from the bottom up from one of the high priests. It was torn from the top down. Again, Christ Jesus there at that moment said, hey, you all now have access into the Holy of Holies. Each and every one of us, we don't have to worry about coming once a year, that we have bells at the bottom of our skirts and a rope in case we drop dead. Now we can come to God and meet with Him in, the, in His very presence each and every day, each and every moment. This was all a symbol for the day that Christ would be able to make us perfect. So again, that's the joy we have of living in the new covenant, that Christ is willing to make you perfect. But are we willing to humble ourselves, 
pick up our cross daily and follow him. Because again, it's not how we feel. It's not what we think. It's not our ideas or this person or that person. We sinned against him. He makes the rules. If you want God to dwell with you, he wants to dwell with you as well. But it has to be according to his will. And that will is through Jesus Christ.